Hi folks, welcome to episode 118 of the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Bo, and today we're going to be talking about Britain's first Prime Minister, in putative Prime Minister, uh, Robert Walpole. Now, I don't know a terrible amount about Robert Walpole, so I'll be uh, learning a lot this uh, episode. Um, where do we begin? Okay, well, yeah, he's one of the greatest, one among our greatest statesmen. Hmm. Um, and I think if we're going to cover where we've been covering the monarchy mm. from the earliest times. At some point, um, the cockpit of power transitions from the monarch, from the sovereign, to the prime ministers, mm. right? Um, and so perhaps an obvious place to sort of say that begins is the age of Oliver Cromwell. Mm. Um, it, the supremacy of parliament begins there. But we don't really get what we would call a prime minister until Walpole. Now, there had been sort of preeminent ministers before him. For example, I mentioned Godolphin in the last episode. Mm. He, is, he occupies some, the position of something like a prime minister, although historians, for whatever reason, have never called him a prime minister. Well, mm. I'll quickly tell you the reason. In uh, Walpole's ministry, which lasts 20, 21 years, again, if you look at a list of prime ministers, it's the longest serving one ever. So 20 years, he dominates politics for 20 years. But during his time, people called him a prime minister for the first time. But it was mockingly. It, it, it was to begin with, it was, it was to mock him. Um, right. But that's often the way of things, isn't it? It's, very, it's how we got the word Tory. Right. It's, it's very often the way of things. I'm sure there are a few others as well, uh, like Jacobin and stuff like this, were probably in terms of mockery when they were first, but they just adopted by the people who are being mocked, because they're like, well, yeah, that's what we are, now what? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, interesting. Yeah. Like people called um, Pompey, yeah, Pompey the, the Great, great. At, at first, yeah. <clears throat> to mock him. And then and he started then conquering things. things. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, it's not that tongue-in-cheek after all. Uh, yeah, so yeah. a prime minister. So just to say, it's a broad point to make, is that you, you didn't, they didn't have parties. We've got the Tories and the Whigs. Mm -hmm. They're sort of very, I was going to say fairly, but they are very well defined, hmm. but they're not political parties as we know them. So how did they operate? Like, what was the way of it? It's all very fly-by-wire, seat-of-the-pants stuff. Right. What you would have is you'd have individual ministers um, that just had a faction around them. <clears throat> hmm. um, so what you also didn't have is a type of cabinet collective responsibility. Right. That's what we have now, yeah. is that everyone that's in the cabinet from the, everyone from the Prime Minister down to the lowliest full cabinet member has got collective responsibility for every decision that the government, in inverted commas, makes. Yeah. So there's no one individual. Um, so, for example, say Britain mm. um, uh, makes a terrible decision, like a war crime level decision. Like, like an invasion of Iraq. Like going into decision. Iraq on yeah. the strength of a lie. Yeah. <laughs> you can't uh, then point to one person like the Prime Minister, or it might have been a mm. Defence Minister or a Foreign Secretary, you can't point to one of them and say, you can be prosecuted for this liar, because they're all responsible for it, legally, mm. in a legal sense. Yeah. So we didn't have that, that's important. They should all be prosecuted for that lie. Good point. All right. Yeah, yeah. good point. Yeah. Uh, but no, okay, right, I, so I see. So you, you don't have the sort of institution of the political party, uh, because, I mean, the, both the parties that, the major parties in this country are quite venerable at this point. Mm. You know, they're, they're old, much older than any of the people in the country. 
And so they take on a kind of, um, I don't want to say sacred, but I haven't got a better word for it. Mm. But there are definitely conservatives who view the conservative party itself as kind of above politics. And there are definitely people in the Labour Party who have that opinion as well. And so the party, the institution takes on this sort of tradition and all of its own. And that wasn't something that happened in the 18th century, right? Mm. Because if you've got the faction rallying around a particular individual, um, it, the the movement can only last as long as the individual does. Right. Uh, and so upon their death or upon their retirement, that energy sort of dissipates back into the morass of parliament and, and politics. And so it requires another one. So there, there's an interesting uh, set of uh, challenges and benefits that come from that that I think are fairly self-evident. I mean, like if you've got a tradition and a party and an institution, you can maintain a series of inherited wisdom, as Bert would put it. Um, however, you also get the problem that the Conservative Party is facing now, which is kind of calcification, hmm. uh, and an Im- uh, it makes the it makes the thing immovable in certain directions, which is not necessarily good. I mean, if we were operating in the sort of nineteenth-century way now, uh, and it was Boris Johnson around whom the sort of faction had rallied, then he couldn't have been ousted. By the Conservative Party, you know this, and I'm not saying I would have preferred Boris or anything like that. It's just this would have been the case, right? But instead, the institution can crush the individual rather mm. than the individual being the the leading light of it. But the thing is, conversely, then it requires you to have sufficient great men to be able to do that. And if you don't have the right man for the right time, mm. then there's no institutional way of generating one. Mm. Mm. It's true. It's true. Another thing that's very different between then and now, because we are talking the early 18th century mm. here, um, is that the parties, you have sort of vague party lines mm. um, that are drawn, someone sort of ideologically a Tory mm. or ideologically a Whig, um, but whoever would be the head of government, again, we have a Prime Minister, or First Lord of the Treasury, technically, um, who's very definitely legally the head of government. So even here now, or at least before Walpole's time, you didn't have that. You just had a number of ministers. Some might be more preeminent than others. Some might be able to just wield more gravitas than others. But you didn't necessarily have just one head of government. So what that means is, is that the king or the monarch, it might be a queen, might be Queen Anne or Queen Mary or something, um, are still absolutely vitally important to the whole equation. Yeah, because they're the ultimate decision makers, right? And so the, the, the job of the ministers is really to persuade the monarch to make the decision rather than having the legal authority to make the decision on their own. Right? A king can, indeed, sort of just request a new request new ministers yeah. Yeah. and things. Um, as I say, obviously, in quite a, few, quite a long time before this, um, nearly a hundred years, a little less than a hundred years before this, you've got the Oliver Cromwell days mm. and the the revolution, um, where or the Civil War, yeah. where um, you know Parliament really uh, takes a step upwards in terms of its mm. power versus the king's power. However, mm. the sovereign can still just say, um, you know, I, I don't like that particular minister. I want I want another one. Yeah, <clears throat> bring me another. And so you still need the sort of good graces mm. of, of the king. 
The, the king is still a very, is the most important political actor in the, in the play. Whereas now, no one even thinks about the king. Right. And everyone's got the impression that if Parliament wanted, they could just do away with the king. Which I find interesting. <laughs> I'd like to see them try, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I'd like, to see, I'd like to see how the British public prefers the monarchy to the, the Parliament. So it's very different. I say all that because just to point out that it's very different yeah. to what we have today. Yeah, Where the, the head of government is the prime minister, but the head of state is still the king. Yeah. Um, there's, there's an interesting um, interplay of how traditions become formalised here, right? Because we're looking at the beginning, the, 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 the genesis of, the, of where we are now. Right? So we take all of this for granted, but actually it, was, you know, it wasn't you know, handed down you know, intact by some political god or something like that. This, this yeah. slowly but surely was a series of negotiated compromises and uh, sort of best-in-the-circumstances decision-making uh, for, for 300 years. Mm. And where we don't have sort of formal political parties that might have like a whip system. Yeah. So it's all very... Someone might sort of politically backstab you at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lots of there's lots of bribery. There's lots of corruption going on. Lots of corruption, uh, because a lot of it is just to do with if you give people favours or grease their palms yeah. or give them um, if you've got the power to distribute favours, um, then yeah, it's it's not sort of yeah bribery. It's just the best to, way of putting it. To be honest with you, we can see that now. I mean, look at who Boris Johnson elevated to the honours system. Like who his hairdresser. Yeah. What? Yeah. Civil lists. Yeah. Civil lists. When you give someone some sort of honour. Yeah. Or, um, but back then it was all of that as well, but also just money. Yeah. Um, you can't get away with that as easily now, although... Mm. I'm sure it's still happening. Yeah. There's other ways to... There's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm, I'm sure it's just one step removed. My company will pay your company for a mm. service that you don't really have to deliver. Yeah. Or when you're out of office... We'll put you on the board as an honorary thing, and you don't have to do anything, but you'll get loads of money in the yeah. meantime. Do what we want. Yeah, we'll we'll put you in charge of uh, Facebook, Mister Clegg. Right, exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. If you make sure this piece of legislation passes, when you're out of office, yeah, we'll then put you on the board of this oil company, and you'll make loads of money. Yeah, and you've so you've just got to wait a bit for it. Yeah, and so this this kind of patronage system still persists. Mm. Yeah. Obviously. Okay, so Walpole, where he uh, rules, should we say, for 20, for 20 years, more or less, 21 years, um, even by the time he sort of starts that period, he'd mm. already been on the scene for quite a while. He'd already been in Parliament and a, and a, a player mm -hmm. in Parliament for uh, years and years before that. Um, he was sort of still around during the Marlborough years. Right, right. Um, so what's his sort of early life then? Yeah, so he's not, he's just a squire. Right. Yeah, he's, he's, he, they make him, even before this period, I believe, but at some point he's made the, a Knight of the Garter, which is extremely prestigious. Mm. Um, it only entitles you to be Sir. Um, at the end of his career, they do ennoble him to make him a Lord, the, uh, the Earl of Orford, at the end of his career. But anyway, they make him a Knight, but a Knight of the Garter, which is the highest possible thing. And he's one of the few people ever to have achieved that and not be noble, mm. not be extremely close to the throne or 
Um, and so, yeah, that, that sort of speaks volumes to his sort of talents mm. or how close to the inner sanctums of power he was. They mm. made him a knight of the gardens just as a, <clears throat> I mean, just as a squire. Um, so in other words, not born to... Mm. Um, well, he's uh, just a Essentially a commoner, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting, again, like, like Thomas Beckett, we have an example of a very capable man who just happened to be the guy. And despite the fact that, of course, you've got the uh, venerable aristocratic traditions around, are like, yeah, but we do need him. There are exam uh, examples of exceptions to the rule. Yeah, yeah. Um, if some people out there, some Americans, think that it was always, throughout all the centuries, it was just impossible to reach the affections yeah. of the English or British um, institutions and society without being born to it. Well, it's not true. There are examples. Mm. Um, yeah, from mm. Beckett to yeah. Walpole. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't um, just completely a, a peasant. No. But yeah, he, was, yeah, he wasn't born to land or anything mm. like that. Um, so, for example, in, um, what was it, sort of 1712, 1713 sort of time, he is... Um, he is accused of corruption, venality. I mean, he'd been Chancellor of the Exchequer, mm. what today we would call the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He had been that during sort of the days of Marlborough mm. and Godolphin. And um, yeah, um, the charge against him was that he was, quote, guilty uh, of a higher breach of trust and notorious corruption. Um, and so that, sorry, that was in 1710. And he was placed in the Tower, the Tower of London. That's where you're put for like the worst possible crimes and you're probably looking at a beheading. Oh, yeah. You're in a really, really tight spot if you're in, mm. confined to the tower. Yeah. Um, and he, but he was only there for six months and in the end sort of basically acquitted. acquitted. It was a political stitch-up. Mm. His enemies um, sort of saw an opportunity to sort of level that against him and it was it basically proved to be unfounded. It was some really small detail, something to do with some land holdings, some land contracts, I think, in Scotland. It wasn't like a giant thing, like he'd manipulated all of government. Yeah. It wasn't that. It was like a small, almost personal affair. Mm. And they, could, they, they tried to take him down for it and very nearly did. But after about six months, the winds changed and he was essentially acquitted. And, um, well, during his time in the Tower, all the Whig notables... Um, all the sort of leading lights of the Whig movement would visit him and sort of they made a political deal out of it. Yeah. Like, look how the Tories are um, unfairly imprisoning us. Um, so he was made sort of, a sort of like a political martyr right. on some level. And so when he got out, he was sort of, the Whig establishment made a point of rehabilitating his career. And he was immediately, not immediately, but straight away he was allowed to run as an MP again and win. But this, and just a... Um, add something here. Like I, I recently read a book of uh, 18th century executions, death penalty, the bloody code that mm. the Whigs institu instituted. And um, I, I, I should do a book club on it, actually, because it's really fascinating. But it, what, what for me is one of the most fascinating aspects is just how important these crimes of corruption were in the political system at the time. As in, if you were, if you were convicted of tampering with the currency or having done something especially corrupt, they would behead you for it. Mm. You'd literally be hanged. Mm. Sorry, beheaded, but you'd be hanged uh, for such crimes. And so it's not funny to be accused of 
notorious corruption and put in the Tower of London, that is genuinely something that would get you killed. Mm. Uh, and so they had a kind of point saying, well, look, you are, they are persecuting us over this minor thing. It's like, yeah, you're getting far too close to, to, to getting the rope. So, yeah, it shows that he's playing a dangerous game or just that it is a dangerous game at the top of politics. Oh, yeah. Very much more like Game in, of Thrones. In the 18th time, century. Yeah. yeah. They're sort of all playing for keeps. Yeah. And here or there, if they can, you'll get um, arraigned and uh, mm. put up on charges that have the, have the death penalty. Yeah, you're right. It's far too lax on our modern politicians. Far too yeah. few of them fear for their own lives. Yeah, if it was up to me, Boris Johnson's <laughs> crime of putting the whole nation under a type of house yeah. arrest for two years should really be deprived of his liberty. And there, yeah, are, terrible, terrible there are various others who I agree with. Against yeah. the people, yeah. yeah. Like, like the Blair people, yeah. people like Jack Straw. Oh, yeah. All of them, everything they've done to this country. I, mean, I, would, I would consider them capital crimes, but mm. what do I know? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, another, so you can see that there's, sort of, there's a roller coaster going on where you go from being Chancellor of the Exchequer to yeah. imprisoned in the Tower to yeah. back to being right at the top of government. Yeah. That's, a, that's truly sort of a political roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of his closest uh, political allies was Townsend, his brother-in-law. Um, and at one point they're in power in um, about 1717. And um, with Townsend as sort of in charge of foreign policy, essentially. And they, they have to resign or they, they make... You know it's a political gambit to threaten to resign. Yeah. Um, and if you're considered by the, the monarch or, or the power brokers, your power base, if you're considered too important, then that can work and you don't have to resign. But some other times your, your bluff is called. Yeah. And then you sort of are obliged to resign because you've said it now. Yeah. Um, that happens. They threaten to resign over some foreign policy details. Um, because after 1714, we've got Andires and we've got George I, mm. George I of Hanover. And just very quickly to say, is the elector of Hanover, um, is a German. He doesn't speak English, like at all. When he came over, he literally almost didn't have a word of English. Mm. So anyway, it's just sort of very, very German. Um, and uh, But one of the things that means is that the, the leading people in Parliament um, can sort of hoodwink him a bit. He's not completely aware of the extent of all his powers. And even in sort of the Privy Council or in his councils of state, mm. um, he can't, he's not, literally not able to understand everything that's going on. Articulate his own position, doesn't mm. understand the political system. Yeah, yeah. They have to talk through French if they can or some right. broken Latin. I've got a quote right at the end um, from Winston Churchill. I've got loads of quotes from Winston Churchill on this one. It's only a small chapter in his book, but again, he's done very well. Yeah. It's done very, very well. Um, so, where uh, Walpole had been in and around the, co the cockpit of power for many, many years, it's not until the early 1720s that he starts the period of his career that historians look back upon and mm. call it his premiership, mm -hmm. if you like. And that all kicks off with the South Sea Bubble. Right. Now, there's a whole epoch I did with Dan on the South Sea Bubble. So if anyone's interested in that, look back through the list and you can watch that where we go into it in tons of detail. Hmm. Don't actually talk 
particularly about Walpole. Towards the end of that episode, I mentioned Walpole, of course. Um, so here, I'm just going to skate over it very quickly. But just to say, it's a financial crisis um, where a company is created, South Sea Company, <clears throat> to help essentially restructure our national debt. And it all goes awry. Mm -hmm. It's a giant bubble where shares in this company uh, rate, go up to an insane level and then crash. And lots and lots of people lose money, lots of people, including Walpole and his friends. And um, apart from anything else, it's extremely embarrassing mm. for the nation um, because the, the king and the Prince of Wales had backed it. Yeah. Everyone was duped by it, really. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton bought a bunch of stock. And an apparent genius didn't understand that he was looking at a, a, a bubble. I mean... And the, the thing is, though, yeah. this, this is back in the day when the national prestige was important. It just doesn't feel like national... Pre like, like, you know, you talking about, like, foreign policy. It's like, well, yeah, British foreign policy actually mattered in this era. Like, it doesn't feel like it matters at all now. Mm. You know, there's no national prestige. The, poli the, the politicians, the king, none of them feel like they should be proud of Britain. Mm. You know, whereas now, this was... You know, yeah, exactly. This is a, a deep mishandling that speaks to the character of the nation in this. No one thinks like that now. Yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah, I know. It's, if only um, we had some pride in our country, we might manage it a bit better. Some do, I do. Well, yeah, okay, but we're not in charge of anything. All right, yeah. <laughs> you know? But the, the point is, the people in charge are clearly, like, foreign managers. Mm. You know? Now, you mean? Yeah, now, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, then... Yeah, cuckoo's yeah. in the nest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People like Rishi Sunak, yeah. Yeah, doing the impression of a prime minister. Yeah, He's, I mean, literally, he has the badge on his lapel, so yes, he is. You know, mm. but you'd never know otherwise. Mm. I mean, I, I would honestly think of him as the manager of a McDonald's. Yeah, well, or a CBBS presenter. Yeah, it's just <laughs> weird. He has got that air about yeah. him, hasn't he? It's so yeah. weird how he's the guy who's yeah. in command of the country. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's it's an abomination. Yeah, <clears throat> here's a quote from Sir Winston Churchill. The scandal of the South Sea bubble roused the hopes of the Tories because the Whigs had been in power for a lot, sort of been in power for a bit here. Yeah. It raised their hopes that they could sort of get themselves back in power. Mm. Um, their revival as a political force seemed imminent. The government had been thoroughly discredited and the exiled Bolingbroke was hopefully intriguing with his supporters in England. Bolingbroke is just a, a leading politician, Tory leading politician of the time, not to be confused with the... Henry Bolingbroke, King Henry IV from hundreds of years before this, so just to mention that. The name Bolingbroke will come up a few times. Yeah. Um, a brilliant and vitriolic bishop, Francis Atterbury of Rochester, was spinning a new web of secret contracts uh, with the Jacobites in France. The Hanoverian regime had been hit in its most delicate spot, the financial credit of the government. So another thing to mention that's in the background here is the Jacobites and the Jacobite rebellion. Mm. They're still the old pretender abroad, i.e. the son of the deposed James II. Doesn't, he lives, this called the old pretender, he doesn't die until sort of the 1760s, essentially of old age. Mm. So all the way through this period, there's a, an exiled son of who many, especially Catholics, consider the real king of England. And that this, it's, it's crazy that William and Mary and Anne should ever have been the monarch, let alone now George of Hanover. Mm. All that is just completely wrong in the mind of Catholics and Jacobites. Um, so Jacobinism is just sort of in the background here. And there are some MPs in Parliament that are sort of 
fairly op open, well, they are sort of openly Jacobite. It's not like they, you know, they're not treasonous or traitorous. Like they're actually trying to, well, they might be, well, yeah, maybe they were, but they're very careful. Uh, but so there is a faction. Hmm. Um, in the um, same way, you've got a faction in the Democrats who are openly communist. They're not treasonous. Right, yeah. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. Or people in the Labour Party that yeah, are just yeah. sort of crypto Islamists or something. Or just outright communists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone like John MacDonald or Corbyn, yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah, yeah. actual Marxists. Yeah, just, yeah, actual communists. It's like, right, okay. And someone like John MacDonald who openly says, yeah, I would destroy our economy. Well, he, he said his job was to overthrow capitalism. All right, yeah, yeah. All right, that's what I mean. So, and by, by that, he means property ownership. Uh, no. Yeah. Torpedo the British economy, yeah. And Churchill goes on. One man only amid the crash and panic of 1721, that is the South Sea Bubble, uh, could preserve the Whig monopoly. He was Robert Walpole, uh, now established as the greatest master of figures of his generation. So he was considered, if nothing else, um, he was one of those guys who had a great mind, great eye for figures. He could look mm -hmm. at charts and various um, lists of numbers hmm. and sort of fairly immediately ascertain what it all meant. Hmm. It's just, he had a good eye for business, basically. Hmm. Very, very good one. Um, sort of a genius level one. <laughs> and, you know, I love these guys where if, when they go into their field, they've just got the eye, you know. Yeah. We, we always talk about it in military terms, but it's in any field. Yeah. You know, you can just come in, look at a situation, and like, no, that needs to change or whatever. I love it. You don't get to dominate parliament and politics in the early 18th century <laughs> unless you've got some extreme talent yeah very specific talents mm. um church goes on soon he was to become a knight of the garter one of the few commoners to hold the honor the norfolk squire who hunted five days a week had risen to prominence as the secretary of war in the days of marlborough he had been imprisoned in the tower after the whig defeats of 1710 and since his release had been a leading figure in the whig party in the house of commons again just to be clear that it's not a true political party yeah really um he had already been chancellor of the exchequer for three years but he and his brother-in-law townsend had resided resigned in 1717 in protest at the excessive pliancy of certain whigs to the hanoverian foreign policy of the king because still the king could sort of sort of set policy even all the way up to the days of george the third the king could summon his ministers and say i want this mm. to happen in like big things in foreign policy or domestic yeah. policy well, I think he, we should spend all our money on ships now, or something. He is the king. Yeah. You'd think he should be able to do something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was sort of what the the civil war was about. Mm. That Parliament should have the last say. Yeah. In everything, and they that struggle hadn't been completely, utterly put to bed. No. Not even close, really. I mean, it has now, but. Right. King Charles III, our king today in 2023, cannot do anything like that. No. But to be honest with you, Charles, maybe I don't want him doing well. No, it's good. I, no, <laughs> I suppose I would call myself a monarchist, or at least a lukewarm monarchist. Uh, you know, I like the heritage and the history of it, but I'm glad yeah. the monarch yeah. has no real political power. Yeah, That's I, good. That's the way I want it. I, 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 like I saw someone distinguish between monarchist and royalist. Okay, right. A, a royalist okay. is someone who likes the institution of the monarchy. Okay, and thinks, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A monarchist is someone who likes this particular monarch. And it's like, yeah. No, I'm very much a royalist then, <laughs> if, that, if that's how you're going to define it, yeah. Because yeah. Prince Charles, let's be clear, is um, well, a fool a, of a man. He's a weff. 
he's a, yeah, he's a West ignoramus. He's yeah. some sort of globalist, actually. Yeah, I yeah, know. I don't like. Yeah, him. I don't. It's, it's I, weird. I, how I don't like him. A king of Britain can't be particular to Britain. I like the institution. Yeah, I like if it's idea. kept quiet. Well, but I don't if, like the man. I wouldn't mind if it wasn't kept quiet as long as it was doing something that was good for Britain. Right, yeah, which is not doing. That. Isn't it? I can't even imagine it, you know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, Moving on. So, yeah. So, um, Churchill goes on a bit later in his text. Uh, Walpole, on becoming head of the government, immediately turned to financial reconstruction. He was first lord or commissioner of the treasury. Uh, like I say, even today, the prime minister is technically the first lord of the treasury. Um, he was first lord or commissioner of the treasury, for the great office of lord treasurer had been abolished and its powers placed in the hands of a commission. However, just the head of that commission is still mm. the man. Do you know mm. what I mean? Um, the last sections of the national debt taken over by the South Sea Company uh, were portioned out between the Bank of England and the treasury. So, again, without going into too much sort of boring technical detail, the debt of the national debt was taken over by the South Sea Company and that debt turned into stock right. and then you could buy the stock and it's a little bit complicated and um, I'll, I'll leave it there but still when the thing crashed like lost 85% of its value in a month um, then you know yeah um, the national debt suddenly becomes a massive issue again yeah but Walpole sort of deals with it in sort of a fairly prudent conservative with a small c way hmm. sort of very professionally um, yeah, so the last sections were parcelled out, basically, to the Bank of England and the Treasury itself. Um, the sinking fund he had instituted in 1717, whereby a sum of money was set aside from the revenue each year to pay off the national debt, uh, was put into operation. Within a few months, the situation improved, and England settled down again under another edition of Whig rule. So it is a long period of Whig domination we're looking at here. I mean, they call it the Whig supremacy, right? historically. So you look Whigs, it up on Wikipedia, it's the Whig supremacy. So the Whigs had already been in control for quite a few years here already. Yeah. And we're just starting another 20-year yeah. period of Walpole. It's, it's about 100 years or so that the Whigs just totally dominate British politics. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, he was... Uh, uh, this is the point when historians say um, that he sort of becomes essentially a prime minister. Because... Where, the, like I say, there's no party, there's no head of state. You would still quite often have just a preeminent mm. minister, though, mm. where all the others, all the other sort of leading ministers, sort of look to him for leadership. Yeah. Um, and uh, they would dominate that to various degrees. As I mentioned, Godolphin mm. again is one of the ones where it was sort of, it's undeniably him. Yeah. But, but you get that in, in almost any organisation, mm. you know regardless of official capacity, people of talent know how things work and can get things done. And so you can't argue that the merit of the man is not relevant. It's always relevant in any time, in any place, and anywhere that you are, if someone's an expert in that thing, you have to defer to their expertise. Mm, yeah. It's just the way it is. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.